Hello and welcome to The Devil's Party. I'm Anthony Oliveira, PhD culture critic, Dumpster Raccoon. This podcast is going through the book of Revelations in the Bible, uh, and we are on chapter two, which is kind of the first half-ish of the letters to the churches of Asia Minor. There's seven letters, there's four of them in chapter two, and I kind of regret putting them all together because it was a lot of research, but uh, we'll, we'll tackle the first four in chapter two and then we'll move on to chapter three next week. Um, uh, as we talked about before, the extreme amount of imagery of sevens in this that's almost certainly why he chooses seven churches. As we'll see, many of these uh, churches, communities, ecclesia, um, assemblies is probably the better translation of this, um, are quite small. And indeed, some of them, this is basically all we have of their existence at all. Like the, the, the existence of a Christian community in these towns is only attested to by the revelation of John. Um it's very easy to see why he chooses the seven he chooses in the order he chooses them. If you look at them on a map, um, again, we are in the region that has become modern-day Turkey. Uh, our author is on the island of Patmos uh, in the middle of the Aegean Sea, uh, extremely isolated, uh, tiny little uh, island. He's exiled there possibly for some kind of crime he's committed. He's very vague about it. And of course, we don't have anything beyond legends to explain why he's there or under what conditions. Um, but the image of, you know, a, a seer on an island uh, has kind of come to dominate pop culture. Um, if you took a boat from Patmos, uh, which perhaps a messenger would do once this manuscript is complete, you'd probably go to Ephesus. Ephesus is functionally, if not officially, the capital of the region. Uh, port, city, huge in trade and commerce. Um, and it's basically the elbow of the Roman Empire. Pretty much um, functionally equidistant between Rome and Jerusalem. Like, if you were going to travel by land or by... When you travel the Mediterranean, you kind of hug the coast, right, at the time. Um so Ephesus is like a major trade, major political, major travel hub. Um, it was extremely important at the time. It uh, is kind of the mother church of the region. It's the fourth largest city in the empire. Um, and it is... I'm, I'm just going through these churches in order, by the way. <laughs> That's what we're going to do this week. Um it's extremely important to the Christian tradition specifically. In fact, of the 27 books of the New Testament, 11 of them have extremely uh, major ties to the community and the, the physical space of Ephesus. Um, obviously, a lot of them are the, Yo the Johannine community books, which include this one, which includes the Gospel of John. The the Apostle John is, um, by wide and sometimes legendary attestation, said to have settled in that region. Uh, therefore, he gets—that also means that 1, 2, and 3, the epistles of John, are also tied to Ephesus. Um, 
Corinthians is the one Corinthians, the letter Paul writes, is written in Ephesus while he's there. Obviously, the letter to the Ephesians is written to the people of Ephesus. Colossians 1 and 2 Timothy are associated with it, um, as well as Luke and Acts. It's possible Luke was settling there. Uh, because both the Apostle John and Luke uh, who's not an apostle, but is kind of the second generation-y, um, one of Paul's uh, disciples, maybe we'll call him. Um, because they're both associated with the Virgin Mary, uh, Luke, obviously John is specifically given Mary as his mother at the cross when Jesus says, this is your mother, this is your son. Um, Luke is, by legend, also supposed to have lived with Mary. He paints her portrait. Uh, it's why the Lucan gospel has so much Mary content, is the legend. It also means that uh, Ephesus is strongly tied to the Virgin Mary. Um, in fact, it is where in various versions of what you believe happened to Mary, she dies or she goes into her dormition or she has her, her assumption into heaven. Um, the, the ties to the cult of the Virgin Mary make a kind of sense, too, if you think about Ephesus as extremely important to another important virgin, uh, Artemis, Diana, right? The, the temple of Artemis, was in Ephesus, one of the great wonders of the world, um, and also uh, the spot where the Apostle John, the Beloved, is said to have destroyed her temple, right? He sort of, he sort of shakes it apart. Um, it's actually the climax of my own book, is the destruction of the Temple of Artemis. Um, also important in Ephesus, beyond the cult of Artemis, uh, was the cult of emperor worship. Asia Minor has a really interesting relationship to the practice of emperor worship um, that is kind of unique and becomes one of the major focuses of the Book of Revelations. Uh, as I said, it's kind of a strange elbow in uh, the Roman Empire, but that also made it extremely vulnerable to foreign empire. It was, for example, Pergamum was the seat of its own um, kingdom for a while until it was bequeathed to Rome uh, by, by the death of one of its kings. Um, it similarly is vulnerable on its eastern front uh, to forces like the Parthians. Um, that means that it has an unusual investment in showing its loyalty to the emperor. Um, as I said, Pergamum was it, Pergamum was functionally kind of a city-state in its governance, uh, like self-governing. Um, but it, um, all of these cities have a very important have to make gestures of loyalty to Rome, and the easiest way to do that is to make bids and get permission to build temples to emperors, both living and dead. So a lot of these seven cities that we're going to be talking about had extremely busy and um, important for simple optics of loyalty cults to the emperors, including some of the emperors um, who were instrumental in the destruction of the temple, uh, the Jewish temple, that is. Um, that's the other thing about these regions is they have extremely large Jewish populations that are themselves 
uh, getting kind of boom populations as people are fleeing from the destruction of the temple and the the war around that period. It's just too hot a region, um, and a lot of people are immigrating, including, it seems, our author, right? He, as we've talked about last time, is extremely Jewish in his knowledge and thinking, um, and it seems incredibly likely that he actually lived to see the temple and may have even been around for its destruction, right? Um, Okay, I'm going to talk about the four little letters uh, one by one, but uh, I'm going to continue a thought I had earlier, which was about the order that they're in. If you leave Patmos by boat and arrive in Ephesus, uh, you can kind of imagine the face of a clock. Um, Imagine the clock is Asia Minor. Ephesus is kind of the nine o'clock position. And imagine you went from nine o'clock clockwise, and you'd basically have the map of the way these letters go. So from Ephesus, the coastal town, you're going to travel north to Smyrna, also in kind of a river mouth, um, then up the, to the furthest north city, which is Pergamum. Uh, then you're going to go inland to Thyatira, uh, which is uh, landlocked. It's kind of a, uh, a tradesman's city. It was known for its artisans, for its smithying. Um, down just a little to Sardis. So Pergamum is kind of, it's the furthest north, but it's almost like an 11 o'clock. Then Thyatira, Sardis down to south, just south of that. Philadelphia um, over at the three o'clock position. And then Laodicea, is kind of at the five o'clock position. And you can do the kind of circuit that way um, from nine o'clock down to uh, call it five o'clock and then Ephesus would take you back. Um, That's very obviously the way it's constructed. That's very obviously it's the path a messenger delivering them would take um, among his options, right? Uh, And then you can actually just kind of take the river from Laodicea down to Ephesus. Um, There's a lot of ink spilled in the subsequent history of the church to explain, as with everything in Revelations, the greater significance of this order. One of the um, explications I encountered as I was preparing for this week's episode is that actually this is these seven churches represent the narrative of every church's life, that it's um, fervent and um, devoted at first and then goes through these periods of decline and intensity and heresy um, and schism until it arrives at the Laodicean uh, lukewarmness. Laodicea is the one where it's neither hot nor cold, so he spits it from his mouth. Um, That's a very inventive reading of them, but obviously not the writer's intent. Um, Okay, so what does he say to Ephesus? Um, again, the big capital city, the 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 big trading hub. Um, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, and remember, angel there is angelos, messenger. Does that mean sort of the the genius, the the spirit of the church, or does it mean literally like the person in charge? As we'll see, John has a very vexed relationship to what church structure might look like. This is the period when churches are starting to take a form like bishops and deacons and stuff. In fact, Ignatius of Antioch, um, who also worked and traveled in this region and wrote letters to very many of the same churches on his way to his martyrdom at a very advanced age, 
um, may have been like one of the first people to be like, I'm a bishop. Um, what does that mean? So what the spirit means is kind of, the angel means is kind of debatable. Um, but it's clearly like something like the community itself, right? The ecclesia itself. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And here, it's worth pointing out that the letters are actually incredibly formulaic in their structure. They have an incredibly specific layout that they all follow. Um, it's kind of actually a specific six-point layout. First, they announce who they're going to be to, to the church, the angel of the church of whatever, right. That's number one. Then number two, you get some kind of evocation of the imagery from chapter one, um, that long description of Super Saiyan Jesus, right? All those weird qualities. We talked about the kind of blazon of like his hair was like this and his mouth had a sword in it and his feet were really shiny. Like all of those images, one by one, they recur as though each of them had something to do with um, the quality of this church. Now, that's a that's a kind of work people have done since. You can take or leave it. There is something wonderfully, I think, poetic about it to sort of take one of each of these qualities and make them the way that this community addresses itself, right? It has a kind of um, Islamic quality about the... The, the many qualities of God, each of them is a way to think about God's nature. Similarly here, one sliver of Christ's um, entities here stands for each of them. And we can talk as we go about what each of these qualities might be. But that's number two. Um, the guy whose hands were super shiny, the guy whose hair was really white, says this. Um, and then there's an I know sentiment is the third thing that they do it's almost something like almost like a sonnet like way that this is incredibly formularized um so he's always like i know you are like this here is how i know about you right he's moving through the lampstands is the image and here's what he is here's what he knows about you then you get a kind of specific exhortation to each church um uh, a kind of imperative quality, like, here's what you must do. Here's what must be changed about you. Here's your assignment, right? There's kind of a shit sandwich quality to Jesus's feedback. It's like a midterm review is what each of these church letters are like. Um, then there's a general exhortation, uh, 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 to listen to what the Spirit is saying to all the churches. These are absolutely meant to be understood as a sequence you read together. They are a circuit. Um, what he says to Philadelphia matters to Ephesus. What he says to Pergamum matters to Thyatira. You are meant to hear them all. One of the most obvious ways that that is true is simply that you don't get the full picture of Jesus unless you read them all, right? They are somehow self-cohering. Um, and then the sixth quality they all share is a promise of what will happen to, uh, quote-unquote, the victor. That introduces uh, a quality that is going to be very important, a theme that is extremely central to the book of Revelation, victory and conquering. Um, it's that word uh, Nike, right, from like the shoe company. That's the word that is here being used. Uh, I don't pronounce Greek, but it's N-I-K-A-O, Nikau, I don't know. 
Nikeo, I don't know, uh, Nike, <laughs> Nick. Uh, I, I only pointed out because we're going to get a group called the Nicolations in a minute that may or may not be a pun on this idea. Um, okay, so to Ephesus, uh, he, these are the words of him. So you, there's the, which church to the angel church in Ephesus, right? There's that first quality. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hands, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Why this quality for Ephesus? If, as Epha I said, Ephesus is kind of the major hub, if it is kind of the mother church, it makes sense that Jesus's image would both be of control. He holds the seven stars, um, and walking about, moving through the lampstands, because that is going to be the gesture of the seven. It's literally that circuit I was talking about. He's going to move through the seven churches. Um, I know your works, your toils, and your patience endurance. I know you cannot tolerate evildoers. You have tested those who claim to be apostles, but are not, and have found them to be false. What? could that mean? I mean, it could mean a great many things. And as with much of Revelations, we're going to be describing a broad band of possible meanings rather than anything definitive. But I think it is possible as we move through these first four letters to start developing a thesis. And here's where I'm going to start laying it out for you. Um, we've talked about how John of Patmos is very Jewish in his thinking, in his ideology, and indeed very conservative, even for the time, in his Judaism. It is important to note that at no point at all in this text does he use the word Christian. That is not a concept that makes sense to John of Patmos. John of Patmos would consider himself a Jewish person who believes he has found the Jewish Messiah. That is how he thinks, and that is how he thinks his communities should think. And his ideas about what it means to be Jewish under Roman occupation are very specific um, and very critical of how other Jewish people have been responding to that occupation. On top of this, he is responding to, <laughs> again, very conservatively, how other Jewish thinkers who believe Jesus of Nazareth was, was the Messiah are adapting those beliefs for a new world, for a post-temple community, and for that same Roman occupation. Um, all of that, I think, we must keep in mind because we are going to be tempted very many times as we read this book to backdate our own understandings of what Christianity eventually became as though those were settled when in fact they are quite explosively undecided at the moment of this text's composition. The stakes of what Christianity as it emerges will look like are still up for grabs and John is very ferociously fighting for a version of Christianity that did not win, that did not come to pass, that by and large does not look like what Christianity came to look like in the intervening centuries up to now. Um, so when he says, you have tested these apostles who claim to be apostles and are not and have found them to be false, we need to think about what that could mean. 
because there is a very specific person who makes up the bulk of the New Testament who claims to be an apostle but was not. And that person is Paul, <laughs> the father in many ways of the churches of Asia Minor, who worked, as I said, out of Ephesus for many years in the previous half generation before um, this text is written. One of the things we're going to see very rapidly as we move through these letters is that John of Patmos thinks that nothing about following Jesus has um, negated the dietary or sexual laws of the Mosaic Covenant. Uh, John is going to insist, for example, you cannot eat food that has been sacrificed to foreign gods, and you cannot permit sexual licentiousness. Now, there is a way that a lot of fire and brimstone preachers in the last few centuries have tried to take this. Um, and as we'll see, John shares with them quite a lot of the misogynies um, and bigotries that they celebrate from this text. But one of the sexual licentiousnesses, ugh, sexual licentiousnesses, I went for it again, um, that he objects to seems to be intermarriage, marriage um, that is between a Jewish person and a Gentile. Um, in many ways, that seems to be what he means, as we'll see, um, by this kind of uh, porneia, this kind of sexual um, uh, taboo breaking. Um, I'm getting ahead, but I just want to put on the table the possibility that when he talks about these people who say they speak for Christ and are apostles and are not, he could mean actually Paul. He could, <laughs> the great nemesis of this text might just be Paul and the thinking like Paul. Because Paul, um, again, a Jewish figure, in fact, self-confessed to have been one of the great persecutors of Jewish Christians, um, uh, kicked open the doors to a kind of Gentile Christianity. We've talked about this in the other podcasts about other texts, but I should rehearse it for you if you don't know it. Um, Paul models a Christianity that says, okay, the old covenant is no longer standing, um, and now we are preaching to the Gentile communities. And that means you don't need to be circumcised. You don't need to worry about dietary laws. You can experience what he calls a circumcision of the heart. Um, if you want to get married, I would rather you didn't at all, but if you have to, better to marry than to burn. And it might actually be good, he says, if you did marry, um, uh, intermarriage, if you did marry Gentile people, because you could convert them. Um, he also says, like, obviously the gods of other faiths aren't real, so it doesn't matter if you eat meat sacrificed to them um, because that it's, it's all fake. Uh, he says the only reason you need to worry about that is if it offends so-called the weaker. If it makes someone else confused that you're doing it, you shouldn't do it. But you and I know Zeus isn't real, Artemis isn't real, Apollo isn't real, so who cares if you eat meat sacrificed to them? Um... And I should point out that that's just what you did basically to all meat. Like, if you were buying meat at a market, it had been 
so quote unquote sacrificed to the gods. It had been offered to them. It's just a very perfunctory blessing that is given to me. Like, hey gods, do you want this? No? Okay, we'll eat it. You know, like that, <laughs> that's what's happening. It's very hard to remove yourself from that system. Now there is much more um ritualized feast uh eating of these big sacrifices that Paul is himself pretty hesitant about. But by and large, if you're buying meat in a marketplace in Asia Minor, it's been offered to Zeus or whoever. Um and it is our author, John of Patmos, who's like, you can't touch it. Um that's a big exception. That's like that's like we're in a moment where things are modernizing, but it used to be much harder to get food that was halal, food that was, quote, kosher. You had to go to special places to get them, even as young as when I was a kid. These things were harder to find. They weren't in, like, a section of every grocery store. Um, and that's the kind of exemption John of Patmos is insisting upon. And second of all, it makes you very suspicious to the authorities. Um, Judaism, by and large, was enjoying quote-unquote an exemption under roman occupation they were understood to be basically an atheist movement they only worship one god which to a roman is crazy like you can worship as many as you want there's always room for one more they had the same idea about their orgies as they did about their gods right always room for one more what does it matter um but they understood like this is a weird thing the jewish people do Maybe don't offend their god by putting your statue of the emperor in the temple, etc. Um, it's only, and obviously this takes a radical turn in 70 CE when the temple falls, but it's really only when Gentile Christians enter the picture that this becomes a real problem um, for the Romans because it becomes very obvious to them, right? If somebody who used to be a good practicing pagan Roman suddenly refuses to take part of temple sacrifice and refuses to offer incense or pour out wine for the emperor, right? It looks like treason. Um, and you can see why the martyrdoms, and they did happen. They're very clearly attested to how much they happened if they were the crazy systematized version later Christian writers made them out to be is a kind of an open question. Um, but you can see why they had to ramp up when they're like, wait a minute, well, so-and-so down the street stopped stopped sacrificing the emperor. That looks weird. Um, now, we've talked before on this podcast, but I will rehearse again, that Christianity is openly debating what its response to this will be, um, even among the apostles. There are, in the first generation after Jesus' death, considerable discussion and argument between the apostles themselves about what their responsibilities to the Jewish covenant are. And you have several major schools. There's kind of the Petrine um, school, obviously referring to Peter uh, and uh, James the Just, the brother of Jesus, whatever you take that to mean, Jude, um, operating in and around Jerusalem who say, we're still Jewish. We have to stay Jewish. We have to maintain dietary laws. We have to be circumcised. Um, I remember, as this is a very personal detail, but I remember as a kid being really scandalized and upset when I came across a verse that said, you have to be circumcised. And I was like, oh no. <laughs> um, against that, sorry if that's too much, uh, against that you have people like Paul who are like, no, it's fine. All The door's open. And in fact, we can be better Jews than the Jews because we will practice circumcision of the heart. 
Um, and there is a moment related in Luke Acts, which again is one text, right? The Gospel of Luke and Acts are written clearly by the same person. There's not really a breakage between them, um, where this this debate gets smoothed out by this this the Lucan propagandist, where Peter has a dream that God says, look at all this great food, food offered to Zeus and bat wings and pig and bacon and crabs and shrimp. You can eat all of it, Peter. And Peter has a change of heart and agrees with Paul. Uh, whether that's true or not, it is the version of Christianity that has largely dominated. Um, from my window, I can see three different places that serve bacon. Uh, <laughs> it is not the world John of Patmos wants for Christianity. And if this first reference to a false apostle refers to Paul, the evidence will quickly gather. Um, okay, that was a lot, but I, I want to set that up as we read through the rest of the letters. Um, okay, so he says, I also know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for the sake of my name, as in Jesus's name, and that you have not grown weary. So there's the, like, the beginning of the shit sandwich, right? Like, here's the good stuff, um, but... I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then what you did uh, from what you have fallen. Repent, which is, uh, the word there is literally better translated as like, change your mind. Um, and do the works that you did at first. Works matter a lot to John, by the way. As we have seen throughout, the Johannine school is not... Martin Luther has a lot of problems with the Johannine school. He wanted, in fact, to throw out revelations until he discovered it was really useful for talking shit about Catholics because um, it's very works-based. It's about what you do in the world, not what you feel. Um, do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Uh, that's kind of the version people like as like, when I was talking about that model that thinks of uh, this is the narrative of every church, this is the beginning, right? Ardent faith um, that gets kind of rote and that gets kind of overpracticed and forgets the feeling that dominates it. Um, it is, in some ways, actually reminds me of Paul because Paul has this idea of, like, if you have not love you are as a clanging gong, right? I think about it whenever I see street preachers. And there is something here about how you can be entirely doctrinally orthodox, but you can still fail if you lack love, right? Um, there's a good kind of antidote to kind of Kantianism, right? That like all that matters is like a, a race of devils could have a just society, right? Um, against that, John is like, if there's no love, it doesn't work. Um, understandable enough, right? Like, that's a very familiar idea to us. But then we get this craziness. <laughs> Yet this is to your credit. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. <laughs> uh, who are the Nicolaitans and why does Jesus hate them? And now I should say, to be fair, he hates the work of the Nicolaitans. But it is a, a strange there's a very specific kind of Jesus we get here. Who are the Nicolaitans? Um, this is the only text in history that refers to them in any kind of first person way, first like witness way. All subsequent references to the Nicol Nicolaitans in patristic church father history 
triangulate through this. And they're always trying to explain this. Um, so we can't really take them uh, as true attestations. Um, so all we know about the Nicolaitans really is what we are told about them from the book of Revelations. Um, one very popular uh, reading of them from the, the church fathers was the idea that they are related to Nicholas the deacon. Uh, there are seven deacons who are selected uh, to help sort of help help the apostles with their administrative duties. Uh, one of them is Stephen, who is the first Christian martyr, St. Stephen's Day. You've heard of that, right? He is stoned to death. Um, his, his feast day is very close to Christmas, uh, cause that's, that's the story of Christianity. Jesus is born and people start dying. Uh, <laughs> uh, most of the deacons have positive stories associated with them. Nicholas never did. And so this kind of legend of how he led the Nicolaitans took root. Um, this is all apocryphal. This is all almost certainly made up to explain this. But the story made up about Nicholas the deacon is that he became Christian and he became so obsessed with um, the purity demanded of Christianity that he refused to have relations with his wife, who was apparently super hot, uh, and and also went even further and started giving away his wife to other men um, as a kind of way to dissolve his um, his like fleshly attachments. Uh, you can see, I think, as we move through this text, you can see why that became what they imagined the Nicolaitans are like, um, because there is something specifically antinomian about that. The idea, antinomianism is just the idea that the law has been dissolved, right? Um, there is a way that one of the things John is mad about is Christians who are going too far in their belief the law no longer applies. And sometimes it sounds like they're having kind of Christian orgy love feasts. Um, it's a criticism that even Paul makes sometimes. <laughs> like, you guys are you guys are going, that, that that kiss of peace lasted a little long, bro. Um, seems like a kind of energy the Christian community is responding to in its early days. There's kind of a little too much free love happening. Um, but again, that's entirely apocryphal. Uh, the other possibility is that the name is a pun, that they are the Nico Lao, Laos. I don't know. Again, I don't speak Greek, but uh, the people of conquering. Um, again, Nike, victory, right? the victorious people, um, in which case Nicolation can just be a very hilariously coded way of referring to the Romans, right? Um, the Romans are the conquering people. Uh, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans. You hate the works of the Romans, of the conquering people, which I also hate. Uh, there is a way that the Romans are kind of also enjoying a bit too much licentiousness for uh, John's taste, right? Um, if you have read the Left Behind series, you will probably recognize here that the Antichrist's human name, Nikolai Carpathia, <laughs> would indeed make his followers the Nicolaitans, whose works you should hate, right? Nikolai, Nicolaitan, Nicholas, right? They're all the same name. Feel kind of weird about talking about my penis. 
<laughs> I'm Portuguese, guys. There's nothing news there. Okay, uh, <laughs> to everyone who conquers, there's that word again, I will give permission to eat from the tree of life that is in the paradise of God. I don't, maybe I do have to explain that. Um, obviously, paradise of God, this is the Adam and Eve story, but it may have escaped your notice, uh, and maybe if you weren't listening to the Paradise Lost um, podcast episodes, there's two trees of significance in the Garden of Eden. One is the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which is the one that Adam and Eve actually eat from. And there's another tree, the tree of life, which grants immortality, which God like evacuates immediately. It's why we're not allowed back into paradise. Because if we eat of that, we'll know good and evil and be immortal. Um, so John, a very good reader of Jewish texts, uh, knows that's a thing and is like, you can eat that tree, right? Um, there's the formula, right? And once we know the formula, it's very re easy to read the rest of these. Uh, asterisk, sometimes they are super weird. Uh, okay. <laughs> to the angel of the church in Smyrna, right? And again, we're just kind of going um, up along the coast to Smyrna. It's kind of 10 o'clock on the clock. Um, these are the words of the first and the last who was dead and came to life. Again, borrowing from the images from chapter one and applicable here because this one is going to be about a martyrdom specifically. So like the people who are martyred, um, they will come back in the same way Jesus was dead and came back. I know your affliction and your poverty even though you are rich. A very Jesus idea, right? A Beatitudes idea that, like, even though you're poor, you're rich in spirit. Uh, whatever, Jesus. Um, I know the slander on the parts of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Oh, boy. I don't have to tell you how this has been used, right? Like, the synagogue of Satan, people say they're Jews, but they're not. Like, the anti-Semitism this has been leveraged uh, with um, over the centuries is wild. Um, and indeed, I in fact encountered, as I was doing a lot of the uh, research for this, not only, uh, first of all, a lot of that anti-Semitism, because it's still very prevalent in a lot of evangelical thinking, etc. Um, but I also encountered what I would consider just kind of a more sophisticated version of that anti-Semitism, which was people apologizing for <laughs> this reading because it's like, oh, Christianity at its earliest was anti-Semitic. That's not true. Christianity at its earliest was Jewish, and that's what you're reading here. Um, the best readings of this are the ones, uh, if you want to see a full like essay-length version of it, check out Elaine Pagels in her book Revelations, um, but you can also get a really good summary of it in the Jewish annotated New Testament. Um, because what this is, is a Jewish person, again, offering a kind of version of the same critique he just offered of the so-called false apostle, which is, you know what John is sick of? He's sick of people who rolled into Christianity late and are into Jesus and are saying, you know what I am? I'm Jewish now, but you're not doing the things you're supposed to do to be Jewish. You are not of the synagogue. You are a synagogue of Satan. That's what this is. This is a Jewish critique of non-Jewish people pretending to be Jewish. Almost the exact opposite thing that it has been read as for like 1800 years. <laughs> uh, 
that's amazing. Crazy, right? Um, sort of, like, I don't think you could bend this writer's mind more than to tell him that the main way your text has been used is to be anti-Semitic. Because his whole point is, like, we're not being Jewish enough, everybody. Um, Synagogue of Satan is interesting for a lot of reasons. One of them, and I saw this in the comments, if you're not on the Patreon, go sign up for that, patreon.com slash meacupa. Um, talking about, like, I thought that some of them were saying things like, I thought that uh, Satan as, like, this metaphysical threat was a Christian idea. And I talked about this a little last week, but it's worth rehearsing as we get deeper and deeper into this text. Satan as kind of a cosmic foe emerges in a specific moment in Hellenistic Jewish history, and you're looking at it dead in the eye right now, that is kind of rejected by the form of Judaism that has become dominant, which comes out of the rabbinical school after the fall of the temple. But there is a very specific moment in Jewish history where Satan does get to be almost a Zoroastrian-level anti-god. Um, and we used to theorize about this a lot, and then we discovered things like the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Nag Hammadi Scrolls, and it's like, oh, shit, like, this was everywhere. This is actually a very specific way of thinking that we see a lot in the Essene texts. Um, I learned this week that the word Essene and the word Hasidic actually share the exact same root, Hasidem, which is, like, the holy ones. Um the Essenes were preparing for real spiritual warfare. They were they were literally um, keeping like weapons in their uh, monasteries. And indeed, when the Romans started their purge, when they destroyed the temple, they killed the Essenes, who were monks, as though they were enemy combatants. Um, but they talk about the war between the sons of light and the sons of darkness. They talk about Satan in these absolute metaphysical terms as like this great... Um, final battle with the angel Michael and with this kind of Messiah figure that was going to come. Um, but also that word literally just means adversary. These are, they are the synagogue of adversaries. They are the meeting of adversaries, right? Again, both the words synagogue and Satan are being backdated with valences they may or may not have here. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Beware, the devil is throw you, some of you into prison, so you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have affliction. 10 is a weird number. Um, a lot of people are trying to figure out what that 10 specifically is supposed to mean. Who knows? Like, it, it, it seems to mean a lot, but with, a, with an end, right? It's unusual for this writer. You'd expect, you know, seven days or whatever. Um, 10 days you'll have affliction. No idea. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. A lot of ink spilled about that crown of life thing. It seems to mostly be like an athletic crown, you know, like uh, the laurel leaves you get for running a marathon kind of thing. Um, a lot of people being like, oh, it's because Smyrna had this specific track where they ran this thing or because it looked like a crown. Um, listen, it's, I, you don't need me to explain what the image of receiving a crown means, right? Like, do with that what you will. Let any who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Again, that weird line that's in all of them. Um, and again, insisting upon the circuitness of it, right? Like, you got to listen to all of them. Um, whoever conquers will not be harmed by the second death. Fair enough. 
And again, if you buy into the idea that Revelations is tracking the history of church history entirely, that is the period of the martyrdoms, right? Uh, we're going to get more of them in the letter to Pergamum. Pergamum is the furthest north of the churches mentioned. Um, itself really interesting historically. As I mentioned, it was kind of its self-governing city-state for a hot minute. Um, it basically bequeathed itself to Rome, uh, and in the process of that, again, became kind of a major site for imperial cult worship, including some of the emperors, not at the time emperors, who but went uh, went on to become emperors, who had been instrumental in the destruction of the t Jewish temple. Um, among other things, it was the site of a truly amazing temple to Zeus, um, to Jupiter. Uh, that temple is not uh, intact anymore. It is almost entirely reconstructed, in fact, in Berlin. Uh, if you ever get a chance to visit Berlin and it's open, I believe it's actually closed right now, the museum, but there's a museum on the River Spree, um, the Pergamum Museum, that uh, recreates this amazing temple. Many, many, many artistic artifacts were looted and brought to Berlin for reasons I'm sure you can imagine and admired by pretty much the worst people in history, many of whom believed they were foretold in the Book of Revelations. Um, but the Temple to Zeus was truly astonishing, and I'm convinced that's what John of Patmos is referring to, wherein he says, you are living where Satan's throne is. There's scholars who think that Pergamum itself kind of as a town looked like a throne. Um, anyway, the point is very clear here. Oh, by the way, he opens with saying, these are the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. He has some sharp two-edged words to use in this reading, he refers specifically to the sword, so this one's the easiest to figure out. I know where you are living, where Satan's throne is, yet you are holding fast to my name, and you did not deny your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my witness. The word witness there is the word martyr. This is, we are watching before our eyes as the word witness comes to mean a person who dies for Jesus, my faithful one who was killed among you where Satan lives. Um, again, we don't know anything about who Antipas was. There's all kinds of fun um, stories made up about him in later centuries. He's cooked alive in a brazier and stuff. Um, all, all legends, all kind of apocryphal, all made up to explain this beat. Fanfic. Um, but again, clear attestation to one of the reasons it's so vague is like he takes for granted they'll know who he's talking about, right? Um, Christians were being martyred. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block, literally a scandal. That's what a stumbling block is, a scandal, before the people of Israel. So they would eat food sacrificed to idols and practice fornication. Those are the two things we were just talking about, right? Um, meat sacrificed to idols basically is any meat in the marketplace. Um, John is insisting you should not eat that and practice fornication. I mean, it could just mean sex before marriage, but it could also mean marrying a Gentile, right? Um, 
who is Balaam in this? Well, in the new, and again, this is a kind of semi-deep cut. I don't know if even many Jewish people know who Balaam is anymore. Balaam is a prophet, a fascinating figure. You should read about him (laughs) because he is a bad dude who is not Jewish, but who God kind of uses to his purposes. You may have heard of Balaam's donkey, which is maybe the most famous story about Balaam from the Old Testament. Um, But he does exactly what this text says. He's like, what if we corrupted Israel by intermarrying um, our women with their women? That's a good way to corrupt a nation. Um, uh, So they would eat food sacrificed to idols and practice fornication. Who is he referring to? It's very clear he means someone contemporary as with most things in the book of revelations he's using code to talk to about somebody i think he means if he's not talking about paul he's talking about someone who believes exactly what paul believes right um (laughs) is the false apostle balaam are these all referring to the same person and is that person paul very very possibly um He certainly allies with Paul's teachings, whoever he is. Um, So you also have who hold to the teaching of, again, the Nicolaitans. Uh, How proximate should we feel like the teachings of Balaam are to the teachings of the Nicolaitans? Are the Nicolaitans, does he mean that the Nicolaitans believe the same things as Balaam? Are they kind of the same people? Are they distinct but leading to the same corruption again? Are they like the Romans where it's like, yeah, you can marry us. Yeah, you can eat our meat. Maybe. Um, Repent then. If not, I will come to you soon and make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Let any who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. To anyone, everyone who conquers, again, the same word as Nicolaitans, I will give some of the hidden manna. Um... Your ancestors ate manna in the desert, right? That's the stuff that the weird sky bread God sends down to feed the Israelites as they're fleeing through the desert. There's a lot of stories about what happens to the manna, and John is learned enough to know some of them. For example, God maybe keeps some of it in a special place, or some of it is stored by the Israelites. Um, It's very clear that Jesus has access to God's pantry, is the point, right? Um weirder is the next reference and i will give a white stone and on the white stone is written a new name and no one knows except the one who receives it i personally obviously really like the idea of god as giving people new names it has a real queerness about it to me obviously it is true jesus renames peter um jesus kind of renames paul right uh he starts using a different name when he has a new identity um the white stone what's that well it could just be like an amulet it could just mean like a magical thingy uh it could mean there's references we have to romans using white stones as like your admission to banquets like hey come to my party here's the stone at the door um one deep cut that actually one of the commenters on the Patreon mentions is that it could be referring to uh, Urim and Thummim, the weird, we don't know what they were, but they were like some kind of rock or rocks in the breastplate of the high priests that were kind of used to tell true and falseness. They were like prophetic 
oracular devices like should we follow Paul um should we follow Saul King Saul or should we follow Jonathan right like that's a kind of function that they have um maybe the point is like here it's another one of the the prizes like Jesus is giving out a lot of door prizes the crown the fruit from the tree of life um, they're all kind of these deep cut references that will be our rewards, our physical rewards in heaven. Incidentally, Pergamum is also a center of learning. It may actually have been, it's probably where parchment was invented. Uh, parchment, even though it seems when you see it in French, parchemin, it always, I always thought it was like the garbage by the side of the road, like parchment paper is like trash paper. Um, it's probably actually related to the word Pergamum. Uh, <laughs> that it is the paper of Pergamos. Um, I just thought that was cool. Uh, <laughs> okay, last of the ones we're going to do this week is Thyatira. Um, Thyatira is the smallest of the cities in the list. It is truly... Thyatira as a Christian city is really only attested to basically here, and as we'll see in Acts... Um, very small compared to the first three. Uh, it's basically a commercial and manufacturing town, um, which actually kind of makes fitting the reference Jesus makes. He says, To the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, These are the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Um, it sounds like a smithy, doesn't it? Like, that's kind of a cute, <laughs> a cute way to tie it together. Um, I know your works, your love, faith, service, and patient endurance. I know that your last works are greater than the first. But, and here we go, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet and is teaching and beguiling my servants, and servants is a euphemism, the word almost always used in Revelations for Jesus's quote-unquote servants is actually slaves. Um, you tolerate my slaves to practice fornication and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Again, there's that twinned critique, right? Eating food sacrificed to idols and practicing fornication, whatever that means. If indeed it is intermarriage, again, it links to the same stuff with the Nicolaitans and Balaam and the false prophet, right? Um, I gave her time to repent, but she refused to repent of her fornication. Obviously, and here's where fornication gets weird, right? Like, that's not, almost certainly that is not literal fornication. Um, let me finish the reading before we start. Uh, close reading this bit of ugliness. Beware, I am throwing her on a bed, and those who commit adultery with her I am throwing into great distress unless they repent of her doings, and I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am the one who searches minds and hearts and will give to each of you as your works deserve. Um, okay, what is that? Uh, <laughs> well... It's worth noting the Thyatira letter is the longest letter. It is also worth noting that it is basically, I think we can all agree, a wild misogynist screed, right? Um, because what's clear is that this is the same kind of leader as he is critiquing when he talks about the false prophet and when he talks about the Nicolaitans and when he talks about Balaam. But because it's a woman 
for some reason it has for some reason for some reason it has activated this extremely graphic uh, sexual imagery. And it is imagery, right? It's very clear, whoever she is, she is a religious leader. And not only that, she is a religious leader within his community, right? Um, he is critiquing a fellow prophet who he feels is his uh, nemesis, right? This is not an external figure. This is not a Gentile figure. This is a woman who has the gall to present a version of Christianity that does not match John of Patmos's vision of Christianity. This will be consistent. Whenever a woman comes up, like, no one in history has a bigger Madonna whore crisis than John of Patmos, quite literally, as we will see. You're either the virgin or the super pregnant woman mother, or you are the whore of Babylon. Jezebel is a code. Maybe I should explain because that is maybe not obvious. Jezebel is a figure in the Old Testament. She is the wife of King Ahab, for whom Moby Dick's Ahab is named, um, who quote-unquote seduces, and again, that is a sexual image that is not, uh, in fact, anything to do with her politics. She leads uh, a cultic practice in Israel to worship her god, because she's a foreign princess, Baal. Um, she gets thrown from a tower. She gets eaten by dogs. Again, itself kind of, I mean, she's a historical figure, but itself like laced with misogynist imagery. You've heard the term Jezebel referred to in sexual terms. Um, but she was a queen. She was married <laughs> to the guy, right? Uh, but the same, it's the same image. He wants you to think about a woman who misleads a nation into worshiping false gods and having orgies and eating meat that you shouldn't eat, right? Um, a horrifying way to talk about what is basically a colleague of his who he's having a doctrinal dispute with. Who was she? Again, as with Balaam, we can only guess. Um, there are, in fact... One of the things this gives us plenty of evidence for is that there were, in fact, women leading Christian movements at the time, right? She is exactly as important and exactly as um, uh, senior in the church as John of Patmos, whoever she was. Uh, we have a great deal of attestations to women just like her. We will have occasion, for example, when we get to the letter of Philadelphia, to talk about Philadelphia, for some reason, has a lot of um, female prophetesses in it. Uh, there's the woman Amia. Um, the Apostle Philip's four daughters were all said to be Christian prophets, uh, which is fascinating to me. Philip, you may remember, is the one who leads... Uh, He's like the vanguard of the Gentile Christianities, right? Like he becomes the missionary to Gentile Christians. He's the one the Greeks, remember, in the Gospel of John wanted to talk to. They were like, Philip, what's the deal? It makes sense that his daughters as prophets would be opponents to uh, John of Patmos, right? Um, because he doesn't want Gentiles getting into his um, Jewish messianism, right? One of my favorite possibilities to think about who Jezebel might be is Lydia. Um, if you're interested, you should look up Lydia. She is one of 
Paul's converts. Again, if she's an if she's a disciple of Paul, it makes sense that John would hate her. <laughs> uh, and she is a merchant of purple goods, mentioned in Acts 16, um, 16, 12 to 15. She's a merchant of purple goods uh, who actually lives in Thyatira. That's where she's from. And she's one of Paul's first converts at Philippi. Um, really amazing and fascinating, right? Like this, and this image feels like it's a warm-up for the Whore of Babylon image because the sex she's having with them is, is, a, is a metaphor, right? Like she is corrupting them with her teaching and John is like immediately goes to like thinking about her in bed, right? It's, it's a sick bed, but it's meant to be obviously evocative of sexual congress, right? Um, striking children dead, like... <laughs> This text's version of Jesus is so wildly out of sync with the rest of the Gospels and yet becomes so dominant in our thinking about Christianity in later years. It's uh, fun and depressing at the same time. Anyway, but to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan— Many people think that's a joke, that whoever Jezebel, perhaps even Lydia is, um, maybe there was something cultic about it. Maybe there's a mystery cult about it. Maybe she's a Gnostic, right? Maybe she's an antinomian. Maybe she's like, yeah, we can adapt. We can be kind of Hellenized and Greek. We can participate in their learnings. He's like, those are satanic. Um, To you I say, do not lay on any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. To everyone who conquers, there it is again, conquering, and continues to do my works to the end, I will give you authority over the nations to rule them with an iron rod as when clay pots are shattered. Something is weird and going on that we can't quite track with the end of this. Um, in fact, my this version, the Oxford Annotated, which is um, using the new revised standard, actually puts that into verse. Um even as I received authority from my father to one who conquers, there it is again, I will also give the morning star. What makes him think about the morning star? We're used to thinking of the morning star as Satan, specifically because of that one line about Lucifer falling like the morning star. But Jesus is the morning star too. Um, Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Again, very formulaic. The morning star is the one that is maybe the most mysterious here we we can kind of figure out the white stone we can definitely figure out the tree of life we can figure out the crown why is the gift to thyatira the morning star um i don't know and nobody else knows uh (laughs) as far as i can tell um this edition points out like is jesus himself see for example later images in book 20 chapter 22 or numbers 24 i don't know jesus is usually morning star material but other than that no idea all right i am going to turn over and tackle the comments on the patreon subscribe to patreon.com slash mia if you want to hear those uh or if you want to participate because the community there is super nice and super thoughtful um and from all walks of life and versions of faith past and present um Uh, And then next week, we're going to tackle the other letters. Uh, Till then, thank you so much. Be brave enough to be kind. Bye-bye.